0: Sarah Hi
1: Allison. So welcome back After our summer break Yeah Episode 80 Episode 80 Yo. Yay That's yeah. a, not
0: nothing <laughs> no, good, to, good to see you again Sarah Yeah Um, Was your holiday carefree, uh, full of insouciance? (laughs) (laughs) What
1: a question. Well, okay, let's count. Massive heat waves, um, forest fire Mm -hmm. a few kilometers away from where I was, you know, but... Drought. Yeah, yeah, drought, you know. But we did manage to take in a bit of a break and eh, slightly carefree, I'd say.
0: Well, President Macron wants to make sure that we... Take the rentrée as they call it seriously. ah oh, yeah, no more uh, carefree. No, 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 no. more carefree's out. No, okay, <laughs> carefree's out. Concerned and worried is in. He was rather untypically downbeat in his first cabinet meeting at the end of August. Um, he said that we could be in for a rough ride this winter and that France is facing a new era of instability. This, of course, uh, caused by global warming um, and the war in Ukraine.
2: Je crois pour ma part que ce que nous sommes en train de vivre est... De l'ordre d'une grande bascule ou d'un grand bouleversement
0: what we are, we are currently are living through is a kind of major tipping point or a great day upheaval day he day says day. we're living the end of what could have seemed an era of abundance
1: hmm an era of abundance mm. I mean I guess that's true right like uh, we have been consuming too much I mean well mm. bon, that's a point of view but you yeah. know like there there is a sense live in a consumer society it's a consumer society yeah, yeah. but uh, it's true that the choice of words is
0: interesting and mm. probably felt kind of flat, right, with those who did not spend their summer on the beach. Yeah, or riding jet skis, Uh. like Macron was seen doing uh, on his holidays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Many people do not feel like they've had much
1: abundance lately here in France. In the last few months, they've been struggling to pay bills with rising inflation, which is, you know, a worldwide problem, but very much hitting France too.
0: Yeah. And one of the big union leaders said Macron's comments were misplaced, given that millions here are unemployed. And in a precarious situation. But the president clearly felt that he did have to warn people that we could be in for a a difficult winter. He'd already said similar things earlier in the summer, that France was facing energy shortages and high prices in the wake of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne has also been talking about the risk of energy rationing this winter. She's called on companies to reduce their consumption and draw up, for example, energy saving plans. And the public is being, we, (laughs) are being Encouraged to turn down the heating, for example, to 19 degrees. Yeah, stay uh, cooler in the winter. Yeah, not heat so much. Yeah, mm. use less gas, for mm. example.
1: Yeah, because gas, right, that's the issue. Sanctions on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine have led Russia to cut off gas supplies to much of Europe, including France. So we found other sources, but the gas shortages. Have pushed up prices. Mm-hmm. Um, though it has to be said that France is better protected than some neighbors because mm. it, it doesn't
0: really rely on much gas, right? No, France imports only around sixteen percent of its gas from Russia, compared to fifty-five percent for Germany. Uh. And France says that around ninety percent of its gas needs are covered for this winter. It's mainly used for heating. Unlike Germany, most of France's electricity comes from its own nuclear power plants, and only around ten percent of it. Comes comes from hydrocarbons, including gas, and then the rest from renewable energy.
1: Okay. So if France isn't that reliant on gas and on Mm -hmm. Russian gas imports, what's the
0: big deal? Why is it freaking out? Well, the main reason is that more than half of France's 56 nuclear reactors are currently offline. Ah. Yeah, so that's 32 of them are out for the moment, either for routine maintenance or because of corrosion issues. This week, France's main electricity provider, EDF, suddenly announced that all the nuclear plants would be up and running by the end of the year. Oh, just Tunky like that. Dory. Okay, yeah. snap your fingers, there you go. Mm, but it's not that simple. Ah. I spoke to Yves Marignac. He's a nuclear energy expert with Negawatt. That's a French think tank pushing for low carbon energies. He told me that EDF's promise isn't realistic.
3: The signal is reassuring, but unrealistic. I mean, there's no way EDF could restart all of the 32 reactors by this winter. Even EDF's schedule of uh, restarting them gradually uh, with uh, an end by um, February is not likely to happen, mostly because reactors that have been uh, concerned by this safety stress corrosion issue need some repairs, and these repairs can't technically be uh, complete in such a short period.
0: All right. So... There is a risk of power cuts then, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's why the government is also pushing for energy efficiency, reduced consumption.
1: All right, so reduced consumption, energy efficiency. Okay, what about renewables and all this? I mean, France has big ambitions for, like, wind power, I mean, despite the dominance of nuclear and our energy mix.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because France wants to take the amount of electricity coming from wind power up from the current 8% to 15% within uh, the next few years, within, uh, before a decade. There are around 8,000 onshore wind turbines in France for the moment. Most of them are in the north of the country where there are strong and regular winds. The first offshore farm opened earlier this year in Saint-Nazaire in Brittany. But there's growing resistance to the onshore wind farms. In the village of varin that's in the Le Roire in central France, locals have been trying to stop a number of projects. And some retirees, members of a citizens' collective, told our colleague Lucie Le Jambert why they were against.
3: Je suis furieux. Des monstres
0: I'm furious. they are monstrous blots on the landscape, he says. They damage wildlife. There's the noise, the flashing lights. It's ugly. It's spoiling the French countryside, she
2: says. Wind
0: farms are simply there to fill the pockets of foreign promoters and construction companies, says this man. The French department with the most windmills, Sarah, is the Somme. It's got 747. They've provided much-needed tax revenue to what is a relatively poor part of France. But still... A number of associations have been set up to take wind farm companies to court to try and stop the development. The village of montagne west of Amiens, in the north, has 50 windmills nearby. More than 125 others are authorized and then many more are in the pipeline. Julie Sandry moved back there after leaving Paris. She doesn't oppose wind farms outright, but she told our colleague
2: Lise Lebec that there are now just too many of them. Notre campagne, en fait, se retrouve... Our countryside is being completely transformed bit by bit. It feels like I'm living on an industrial wind farm. The windmills are 180 metres tall, so it's heavy industry. It doesn't feel like a rural area anymore. And it's not just the visual blight, there's also the noise. When it's hot, we have to keep the windows closed because of the noise. Some people compare it to a plane taking off or the sound of a big washing machine, a low sound. Problème, en fait, avec it's not like traffic noise that you can get used to because artères, it's so unpredictable. Uh, le bruit des voitures qui passent me absolument pas. Là, on est sur un bruit auquel le cerveau ne peut pas s'habituer. You can't hear it every day, but depending on the strength on or direction pas, of the wind, it can be unbearable and go on for weeks in a row. Surtout, uh, avec ce bruit qui peut devenir insupportable pendant plusieurs semaines d'affilée. I use noise-canceling headphones, otherwise I can't concentrate. The Somme, where
0: Julie lives, is part of the hauts de France region, which has the biggest concentration of wind turbines in the country. Its president, Xavier Bertrand, a former right-wing Labour and health minister, has funded anti-wind farm groups.
3: This could turn violent. People are fed up with being surrounded by wind
4: turbines.
1: Landscapes and nature are part of the French way of life,
4: and we're degrading it with these turbines.
3: I want us to stop the chaotic development of wind farms. If we want carbon-free electricity, we must continue
1: to support nuclear energy. So here we see
0: wind being pitted against nuclear. Yeah, there's a clear divide. Opposition to wind power is very strong on on the right, especially the far right. Marine Le Pen, head of the national rally, has said she wants all wind farms dismantled. Yves Marignac confirms that the backlash against wind farms is being fueled by the pro-nuclear lobby.
3: The nuclear industry and its uh, supporters are trying to uh, escape the responsibility of the uh, current crisis and uh, Put the burden, put the responsibility on the shoulders of the government and of uh, the uh, pro renewable uh, movement, but that can't stand in the long run. I mean, it, it is crystal clear that it is the failure of the uh, nuclear industry itself, together with the pursuing of the uh, high level of dependency of the French uh, electric system to uh, this nuclear fleet, that leads. To the current crisis. So there has to be a political shift in the coming month regarding this kind of reasoning.
0: Marignac reckons the current energy crisis could, in fact, be an opportunity and give renewable energies a boost, not least wind power. And what's more, he says French public opinion is increasingly accepting of the notion of energy efficiency, providing it's applied across the board.
3: Most people clearly understand. The need, not only uh, because of this uh, crisis in the short term, but uh, because of the uh, overall unsustainability of our uh, overconsumption patterns. Most people understand the need for sufficiency, so they are ready to be responsive to uh, what the government is demanding on some conditions. And the main condition is that this is fairly implemented, meaning that efforts and changes are not only demanded to uh, households, but uh, that companies, that public services do their part. And also that when it comes to individuals, that the uh, share of effort is fair.
1: Yeah, we've seen that quite clearly, right, Mm. with calls for windfall taxes on energy companies because
0: they've made huge profits from this crisis. Yeah, there's also been outrage here over the fuel-guzzling private jets Mm. uh, transporting the rich and famous, including (laughs) PSG football players, when taking the train would have been a lot more environmentally friendly and just as quick. Yeah, if there's one thing the French don't appreciate, it's unfairness.
3: (laughs)
1: So we were just talking there about the right being opposed to wind farms. Allison, have you ever wondered why we call it the right or why we talk about the left? <laughs> that's a, that's a I guess not. Oh, that's a really interesting question, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. The, the term dates back to the time of the French Revolution, mm-hmm. when members of the National Assembly sat on one side of the chamber or another, depending on their allegiance to the king.
0: So many things go back to the revolution in this country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. you can't escape yeah, it. It was
1: a seminal moment. It was, it was. So September 11th, 1789, 233 years ago this week, Two months after the storming of the Bastille, members of the Constituent Assembly gathered to debate whether King Louis XVI should be granted veto power. Mm. Depending on their stance on the issue, the lawmakers spontaneously split physically. They sat on different sides of the chamber. On the right were the monarchists, who supported the king's right to reject any law, and on the left, the opponents. They actually ultimately won out. Then the seating continued, so those hostile to the revolution or wanting to limit it sat on the right, and those who supported the revolution were on the left. And this sort of practice continued... Absolutely. Beyond the revolution, political Mm. parties or ideologies started forming during the restoration, 1814, 1815. The royalists sat on the right, those backing the constitution were in the center. And then the independentists sat on the left. By 1848, the two sides, they were the democratic socialists versus the reactionaries. And then they defined themselves with a red or white flag. So we start (laughs) getting the visual differentiation there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the terms were adopted by political parties during the Republic in 1871. So you have the Republican left, the center right, the center left. By the 20th century, these ideas of left and right became associated with specific ideologies, you know, describing beliefs, not just where you sat politically. Mm. Over the years, you could see these divisions, Republicans versus conservatives, universalists versus nationalists. Mm.
0: So a case in point might be the the Dreyfus affair Mm -hmm. that we've talked about in the past. So this was this uh, Jewish army captain who was wrongly accused of spying for Germany. The affair really did split people in France On this left-right continuum, Mm -hmm. Uh, those that were supporting him, the Dreyfusards were on the left, and the anti-Dreyfusards, defending the military, were on the political right.
1: Yeah, yeah. And today, of course, though, there are questions about Mm -hmm. whether this left or right even still
0: exists in France today. Yeah. In uh, 2017, Emmanuel Macron was elected, and he vowed at that time to break down this left-right divide. He said he was neither... Left, not right. Neither nor. Mm. Yeah, centrist. During that election, the
1: Socialist Party, the mainstream left, completely fell apart. Mm. And the same thing happened to the mainstream right. These days they're called the Republican Party. This during the 2022
0: election earlier this year. Mm. So while the parties are sort of yeah either disintegrated or uh, they're in a state of flux, the ideologies are still there though, aren't they? Mm-hmm. People are still holding different beliefs along this left-right spectrum.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and then you see this progress of the far right and the far left in all of this. Mm. I mean, you could almost say that Macron project of developing the, the center in France has actually pushed parties farther to the edges
0: yeah and we've seen the the creation of this new left-wing nupes alliance mm-hmm. an alliance between the far left and the greens and what remains of the socialist party all of that has further complicated the definition of what is left and right yeah
1: yeah but of course
0: that definition does still remain
1: over mm-hmm. two centuries later
3: du fromage et du pain. Un bon petit verre de vin, un petit coin de jardin, et un toit sur la tête. Du fromage et du pain, du laurier
0: et du thym, des pommes et du raisin, et ce sera la fête. Fromage et du pain, la fête. Et du pain. <laughs> fromage et du pain, bread and cheese. Yeah, the fundamentals of a, of a good French meal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Alison, when was the last time you ate cheese, like like good cheese?
0: Uh, good cheese. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I eat good cheese on the whole, uh, and <laughs> I ate a very good piece of, I think thirty-six month old Conte about a couple of days ago. Oh, I don't. Okay. Eat, I don't eat it every day, but yeah, two but days ago, pretty tasty. Yeah, yeah. that's the good stuff. Um, I also don't eat much of it because yeah, it is
1: quite pricey. Also, it's probably not that good for you. <laughs> but I do love good cheese. And it's interesting, my kids even say the stinkier, the better. <laughs> oh, I love your kids. <laughs> but that's becoming a bit rare. Um, mm-hmm. French cheese habits are changing. Um, there was a jump in cheese consumption in 2020. This was linked to the COVID pandemic, people were staying home cooking a lot. But uh, what do you know, the top sellers were Mozzarella and Gruyere cheese; those are the cheeses you use to melt on your gratin or your lasagna.
0: Yeah, yeah you don't really so. just—they're like fake cheese,
1: aren't they? <laughs> it's just about
0: melting it on the top. They're not uh, exactly the crème de la crème uh, The French cheese brigade. No. Sorry, I'm cheese, Yeah, I'm showing myself up
1: now. <laughs> no, but our, uh, we should be. But it, 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 in general, there seems to be a move away from this snobbishness about cheese, Um mm. a move away from from cheese plates at the end of meals, and shying away from these smellier, stronger raw milk cheeses. Um, Perhaps the most famous is Roquefort.
0: Yeah, this is this blue cheese made... Uh, of raw sheep's milk, as you say, it's it's pretty intense. It is
1: intense, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And um,
1: but but well known around the
0: world, and it was the first cheese to
1: get an AOC label, or AOP, this protected status, and so it can only be made in the village of Roquefort in the Aveyron region of southern France. It's a region I know pretty well. I spend time there in the summers. Um, this year, I got interested in, in some of the other cheeses that are being produced in the area, in the shadow of Roquefort, mm. as it were. I visited a sheep farm that does both. They both provide milk to Roquefort, but also produce their own cheese. It's 5 p.m., and the sheep on the Sagan farm are getting ready to get milked. A group of visitors is watching. The sheep know what to do. They gather in the barn, lining up to climb up a ramp into a milking carousel. Each sheep lowers her head into a container where there's a small amount of grain to eat. A farmer attaches suctions to the two teats on her udder and it takes a few minutes for the carousel to make a round, then the sheep gets off. This happens twice a day and much of the milk is sent to the village of Roquefort, 60 kilometers away, to make the famous blue cheese.
4: The king of the cheese and the cheese of the king.
1: Rémy Seguin runs this farm with his brother. They took it over from their parents in the year 2000.
4: We sell a part of our milk to Roquefort to make the Roquefort.
1: Roquefort got protected status in 1925. It was the first AOC or AOP cheese in France. Today, there are 40 of them. Each AOP cheese has specific rules on where and how it can be made, from what the animals eat to the way the cheese is treated. Roquefort, for example, can only be made from milk from a specific breed of sheep, the Laconne. Lacon sheep are not cute and fluffy. They have blunt heads. They're very muscular. They're made for the terrain around the Roquefort caves, the Larzac and the neighboring plateaus, which are made of limestone, which doesn't keep water, and it's difficult to grow anything. It's best used as pasture land, and the landscape has been shaped by the pasturing animals for hundreds of years. Milk for Roquefort must come from farms within a 100-kilometer radius around the village, and the Séguin farm is in that zone. But increasingly, Rémy and his brother have been using their milk to make their own cheese, which their parents started making in the
4: 1980s. My mother started to sell cheese on the market in the years uh, 1986 and 87. But before, my grandmother used to make cheese for the family as a lot of farm uh, in Aveyron. But my mother started to sell the cheese on the market. Our parents get the intelligence to continue something that was natural in every farm, made our home cheese with the the milk of the farm.
1: Today, the farm sends 40% of its milk to Roquefort, which has been made in the region for a very long time. It's difficult to know exactly when it started. There's a legend of a shepherd who forgot his lunch of white cheese by the caves at Roquefort and then returned later to find it veined with blue. And he tasted it, of course, and found it delicious. Some say that Pliny the Elder referenced Roquefort in 79 AD when he praised the cheese from Gaul. What is for sure is that Roquefort-sur-Soulzon, the village where the cheese is produced and aged in the underground caves, was well established by the early 15th century. King Charles IV gave a monopoly to the town in 1411. The AOC in 1925 followed an expansion of the cheese in the 19th century. Société, today's largest of the seven remaining Roquefort producers, was founded in 1842 when 15 producers joined forces. They worked to make their cheese known around France and around the world. They bought ads and built railroads. In the 20th century, Société encouraged farmers to specialize in milk production and drop their own cheesemaking.
4: That was the a lot of people do in the years the 60 or 70. They stopped their own fabrication to make only milk for the industry because the industry said, don't make cheese, don't uh, lose your time with this. Just make milk. We we'll do the cheese. It was a good opportunity for the farm to develop to make more milk, to separate the production. At first time, it was a good solution because it's very difficult to make cheese to sell them to make regular cheese all year long, so it was a good solution.
1: Société was bought by Lactalis in 1992. Lactalis is the largest dairy in the world, owned by a French family. Today, the company produces 70% of all Roquefort cheese. The second largest producer, Papillon, is owned by France's second largest dairy, Savencia fromage and dairy. But sheep farmers themselves are now turning back to making cheese. They have access to techniques their ancestors didn't have.
4: It's much more easy for us to make cheese than our parents. The condition was much more difficult. We have uh, technical people to help us. And it wasn't the, the same thing for our parents in the year 1980s.
1: The technology is there, but not the know-how.
4: Now, a lot of people want to make cheese, but not a lot of people know how to do cheese. And we are lucky with our, my brother to have this knowledge, continue from generation to generation. And we are very proud, very happy to continue this.
1: We're here at the Séguin farm in August, and there are lambs in the barn. This is unusual for a farm that produces milk for Roquefort. As part of the AOP, Roquefort only takes milk from January through August, which means the sheep give birth in November and December only.
4: The problem was that uh, we do not have milk from uh, September to December or January. That's why my parents started to have a second troop of uh, 200, 250 sheep in the year 1996 to have milk from September to January. That's why we have lamb. You You have seen the lamb on the farm during the summer.
1: The milk from these sheep is used for the farm's own cheese. They make three kinds, a small, hard cheese called the pichounette. There's also a tom, aged for months in a cave that the brothers bought 15 years ago, in the Gorge du Tarn, about 25 kilometers away. And then there is the Bleu de Sévrac, named for Sévrac le Château, the town nearest to the village of Blayac.
4: It's the most interesting cheese on the farm.
1: It's the flagship cheese, the first one that Rémy's mother made in the 80s, and it's what people know them for. But it is not Roquefort.
4: If you test it, it's softer, and the roquefort is really a cheese we like in the country, because when you eat a roquefort, you eat a roquefort. You recognize it.
1: Rémy says he's not aiming to compete with roquefort with his blue cheese. Roquefort remains a unique product, and it's an important part of the region historically and economically.
4: We need roquefort. It's uh, very important for the Aveyron to get uh, such a strong cheese, such a recognized cheese, but we also need uh, cheese on the farm, farmer cheese, to make different tastes.
1: Roquefort sales have been dropping over the last several years. Production dropped 10% from 2010 to 2020. In general, people don't eat as much cheese. Formal cheese plates at the end of a meal are no longer the norm. And it would seem that tastes are changing. People are shying away from strong cheeses like Roquefort. The French want blander cheeses. Some of them are produced by the same multinationals that own the biggest Roquefort brands, which some activists say is intentional. They blame Lactalis for trying to degrade the AOP requirements to be able to make more cheese for cheap. But Rémi Seguin sees the situation differently. He says that maybe the drop in Roquefort sales is due to there being just more choice. Over the last 20 years, sheep's milk has become more widely known in France, which means there's more diversity.
4: More variety, more type of cheese. Since the year 2000, People speak much more about uh, sheep milk, so it helps us to diversify.
1: He's also experienced an increased interest in local products. He sells his cheeses at local markets, he talks to buyers, and they want to know where their food is coming
4: from. We have seen this much more with the COVID. There is a return to the local. People want to buy good cheese, to know the story of the cheese. That's why when you make the visit, we can receive 30, 40 people on the farm to explain our job or job of farmer, of cheesemaker. And uh, this story made the difference, I think. The people want to know.
0: So the cheesemaker, Rémy Segan says people are still interested in cheese. That's good to know. Mm. So what's behind the drop in consumption then of some of these smelly cheeses.
1: Well, it's interesting. When you look at the the numbers of
0: the AOC,
1: AOP cheeses, the the sales or the production of it, you actually see that they have been actually going up each Mm. year as a whole. There's 40 of them in France, these protected cheeses, but not Roquefort. Um, That's dropped 10% over the... 10 years, as we said. Um, So it's more the Comtes, the Abondance, these sort of Alpine cheeses that are a bit smoother on the palate. Those have been going up. Mm. Roquefort, maybe harder to take. So tastes perhaps are changing. Price might also be an issue.
0: Yeah, let's be honest, mm. hot food is expensive, yeah. you know, especially when you're buying it in big cities away from the, the place where it's produced. Uh, you know, it can be as much as 40 euros a kilo. Yeah, yeah, very expensive.
1: And, and so if you're not eating as much, and you're not serving it to your kids, they're also not learning to eat it. And there's this cycle here. And of course, mm. there's a change in the way people eat on the go, simple, easy to eat foods. Definitely not the definition of Smelly
3: cheese. Pas de bon
2: repas sans fromage, dit l'adage. Mais le gourmet ajoute encore
3: sans fromage de roquefort.
1: Hmm. A little ad there for. <laughs> yeah. That's it for Spotlight on France. Spotlight on France is a production
0: of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiany. Uh, if you've got any comments about this episode or any others or any general comments you'd like to make, then why not send us an email at spotlight.france at RFI.fr.
1: We would really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be putting pictures and videos of sheep this week, go there, check it out Um, Dolly You can find previous episodes
0: at RFIenglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts We'll be back in two weeks time on Thursday, September the 23rd Bye Sarah Bye Alison